Let's open up our Bibles now to Romans chapter 8 as we continue on in this glorious gift that the Lord has given to us, the book of Romans. We are in Romans chapter 8, have been working our way through what really is the the mountain peak of glory that that Scripture has for us. And we're going to be picking up where we left off last week. That has us then in verse... Uh, 18, and after a couple, uh, uh, verse 19, technically, we're going to start reading in verse 18. After a couple Sundays of just looking at one verse, you're going to be overwhelmed by how many verses we're going to get through this morning. But let's read together now. Hear the word of the Lord. We're going to start in verse 18 as we read. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, we thank you for this good and perfect, pure gift that you have given to us, that by your Spirit's working through your word, we hear the voice of our God. We come to know our God, that dead, cold hearts of stone are made to live, that blinded eyes are made to see and deaf ears to hear. So we pray by your Spirit, you would accomplish all of your good purposes among us this morning by your word. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word. Let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our world is governed by what physicists call the second law of thermodynamics. You all know what that means, so no explanation necessary. No, the law of, the second law of thermodynamics is basically this. In a cr- closed system, everything breaks down. Everything breaks down through a process of progressive entropy. In other words, there's a systemic giving way of everything to chaos. Organized things tend to become disorganized. So if you buy a brand new automobile and drive it off the lot after church today, the life expectancy of that car is about eight years which is far too short for something so expensive. We just had to replace the entire furnace system for the whole fellowship hall because all of the piping that runs underneath the concrete floor was corroding and falling apart and leaks were springing everywhere and it was beyond repair. Refrigerators stopped refrigerating. Dishwashers stopped dishwashering. (laughs) Stuff breaks down, stuff falls apart. Even our bodies break down and fall apart. We look at the world around us and we see things like tornadoes and earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes just plaguing our world and the devastation that they bring. And there's no amount of money that brings an escape from these things happening. 
There's no amount of, of money that can, can help us to escape living in the tumultuous and even violent realities of this world. There is no way to avoid these things. Violent outbreaks can, can strike out against us at any time in any place. In 1954, November 30th, a woman was struck in Alabama by a meteorite in her house. A rock from outer space hit her house, broke through the roof, bounced off a radiator, and hit her in the leg. We feel safe in our living rooms, but rocks from outer space can get to us there. She actually became pretty famous. It was the first person to ever be hit by a meteorite. Usually they don't get to tell the story, but this one hit her in the leg. And there was a massive lawsuit then because there was a lot of debate about who owns this rock from outer space on the back end of this thing. In the 1970s, there was great fear over a coming ice age. In the last decade plus, there's been great fear over global, global warming. Now, start, uh, talk is starting to cycle back around. We're not calling it global warming anymore. We're calling it climate change because we're starting to talk about an ice age again. Animal predation is another part of living in this corrupt world. Animals eat each other. Animals eat us. I saw a video a few months ago of a car sitting in the road of a busy road in a city, sitting in traffic, and a lion came to the car and pulled a woman out of the car and killed her in the middle of a city. I didn't see that part in graphic detail in the video, but you see the lion come pull this woman out of her car. Several years ago at Disney World, they were showing a movie at one of their hotels at a lakefront, lakefront viewing of a movie, and an alligator came out of the lake and killed a little boy. If you're not safe at Disney World, where are you safe? And don't even get me started on sharks. <laughs> Nature's perfect killing machine. Plaguing our oceans, but our lakes, guys. Our large lakes could easily have sharks in them. You just need to put that warning out every few months, I think. We depend on the sun, don't we? We need the, the light and the heat and the warmth. We need photosynthesis. We need it for our food production. But if you spend too much time in the sun, what's it going to do? It's going to kill you. We depend on oxygen, but oxygen can be dangerous. It lowers the temperature at which other things burn. So if you put the wrong kind of things together and add oxygen to it, things are going to blow up. Everywhere we look around us, there is suffering. People suffer. Nature suffers. Animals suffer. Architecture falls apart. Machines break, things corrode, everything around us, us included, is in the process of decay, and there is nothing we can do to fix it. Humanity cannot fix what is fundamentally wrong with the world. All right, that's all I got for you this morning. <laughs> Be encouraged. Why is our world like this? Why is it so full of these things? Well, that's what this passage tells us. It's because creation itself is groaning. Creation itself is straining under the weight of the curse of God. The physical universe knows something that we as humans do, do our very best to deny, that we do our best to avoid, something that humanity in large part collectively has forgotten. What it knows is this, that creation is never going to work properly until the curse of God has been lifted off of it. And the curse of creation is never going to be lifted until God has glorified his children. And 
Christians know this, but even the universe knows it. The universe seems to know it better than we know it. Creation itself is eager for our glorification then. That's what Paul tells us in this passage. In this passage, Paul's going to detail for us the eager anticipation of the universe for the glorification of Christians and the eager anticipation that's embedded inside the Christian heart by the Holy Spirit who indwells us for the glorification of Christians. In other words, the universe is looking forward to you and me looking like Jesus. Isn't that a strange thing to think about? You and I are supposed to look forward to that same reality. This immeasurably weighty glory to come that Paul said in verse 18 last week is infinitely greater than the suffering that this world has to offer for us. Paul tells us now as he continues, this glory is worth waiting for. This glory is worth our eager anticipation. That's what he's going to explain to us in this passage. How good is this? How good is the future glory for Christians? Well, it's so good that creation itself is eagerly waiting for it. It's so good that the universe is looking forward to it. And so that's what Paul gives us in the first half of our passage this morning. Creation eagerly anticipating our future glory. Look at verse 19 with me. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The the creation there, when Paul says the creation, he's talking about the non-human universe, the physical universe around us, everything that we we see, all the animals, just the non-human universe. And Paul personifies that. He he personifies creation here. He, He gives to creation emotions. He gives to creation a will. He gives to creation longings and awareness and knowledge. Now, Paul is not saying that that trees and dolphins spend their time thinking about you and your relationship with Jesus. Um, they're, They're not doing that on that level. He's not trying to tell us that rocks have thoughts and desires and a will. It's a literary device that Paul's using. It's a a rhetorical tool that Paul's using. But what he is saying is that the created universe, both animal life and inanimate things, is personified here to put on display God's good design in creation. And his design for the created world and his design for humanity was glory. So Paul Paul personifies this this longing from creation. Creation is groaning and longing, waiting for for this intended design to come to fruition. This this way of talking about nature that Paul does here is a common device in Scripture. We see it numerous times, and it's always revealing to us something of the nature of, the purpose of, the created order. And so in this case, in in Romans chapter 8, verse 19, the subject of the sentence, as Paul personifies creation is the eager longing of creation. The creation is longing, eager longing. That word that Paul uses, it's an especially vivid word. It's, it's a combination of three words, really. Roughly, it's the words, the head stretched away the body. That, that's eager longing, the head stretched away from the body. It's a, it's a picture of standing on your tiptoes, craning your neck, just looking as hard as you can for what's in the distance and, and what's coming towards you. It's, it's, it's creation here straining its eyes. It's, it's creation as a sprinter down in the starting blocks, just, just eagerly waiting for that starting pistol to take off. It's, it's on its toes. It's, it's full of anticipation. It's, it's focused. It's 
ready. This, this word is a, it's a confident, eager anticipation and expectation. And what is it that, that has creation feeling this way? What is it that has creation in this state? What is it waiting for? He tells us in the second half of verse 19, for the revealing of the sons of God. The revealing of the sons of God. Now, Paul says some confusing things. Later, he says that we're, we're anticipating our adoption. Well, we've just been studying what Paul has said in the, in the previous weeks and months where Paul has said, we are now, by faith, the sons of God. We have been adopted by him. Believer, you've already been adopted by God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you already have the fullness of the status that that adoption brings, but what you do not have is the fullness of of the benefits of that adoption. You, you haven't come into full possession of your inheritance yet. It's, it's yours. It's guaranteed. It's rock solid and sure, but you are still waiting to receive and experience it in its fullness. You, you don't have the glory yet that you're going to have, Christian, when you're in his presence, in glory. You don't yet have that glory. You, you know that that's true when you hit about my age and you wake up in the morning and you got hurt sleeping. <laughs> a couple nights ago, I just laid in bed and just didn't sleep all night long. I don't know why. And I had been working on this sermon all week and I thought, yeah, I don't yet have the glory that awaits. <laughs> There's something wrong with me. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. Right now. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We're God's children now, but what we will be is not yet in our grasp. When we are in his glorious presence, in the glorious presence of God himself, we will actually be transformed to resemble that glory as much as it is possible for finite creatures to resemble the glory of the infinite God. It's what you were made for. Human, that's what you were made for. And believer, that's what you were redeemed for. But right now it's concealed. It's concealed right now, but one day it will be revealed. Paul says in, in Colossians 3, verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. We, the redeemed, look forward to that day. And so does all of creation. All of creation looks forward to that day. Why, why, why is it? Why does creation look forward to the day when God's people are glorified? Well, Paul tells us as he continues his personification of creation, the reason that creation is looking forward to, to the day when Christians will be glorified, it's, it's, it's almost self-centered, really. It's because right now the universe is frustrated. Right now creation is frustrated. He says in verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. The entire universe has been subjected to, placed underneath futility. Futility means vanity. Everything you do, it's a word that gets used over and over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes. It is, it is everything that you do is meaningless. This is the hamster wheel. You're on it and it doesn't matter how hard you run, you're not going anywhere. If you're familiar with Greek mythology, it's Sisyphus. 
who was cursed by Zeus to push a giant boulder up a mountain for eternity. And every time he would reach the top of the mountain, straining and working, the boulder would just roll right off the other side down to the bottom and he would have to start all over again. And that was his curse forever. God has placed the universe under futility. It's the curse from Genesis 3. The world is broken. The world is fallen. Creation doesn't work the way it should work because man sinned. And God cursed the world as a result. And notice what Paul says here in verse 20. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So here's what that means. Lions and sharks and grizzly bears didn't come up with the idea of eating you on their own. It wasn't just a thing that seemed like a good idea to them. Rust didn't just invent itself. The sun didn't just decide to give you skin cancer. It's God who subjected the created order to this futility. Ecclesiastes verse 7, or chapter 7, verse 13. Consider the works of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. Why can't we fix the world around us? Because we can't make straight what God has made crooked. The universe is crooked. It's twisted under the curse because of sin. So as we read our Bibles, the first couple pages are really good. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. They're exciting. And the last couple pages are glorious. But what's everything in between? Everything between those first couple pages and those last couple pages From Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 20, the majority of your Bible describes the results of sin. But it doesn't just describe the results of sin. It also describes the hope that was embedded right into that curse that twisted the universe. When that curse came into the universe through through the man's sin in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 says, the Lord God said to the serpent, that's Satan, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15 then of Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. This is the curse. This is when Genesis 3, when the curse comes into the world, when you look around at things and they frustrate you and they don't go the way you think they should, it's Genesis 3. It's the curse. And yet this curse had embedded right in it, baked in, hope. God promises to Satan this woman is going to have an offspring. That's hope. The man and the woman rebelled and sinned against God. He had told them death was going to be the result of this. He could have killed them on the spot and decided to start over or decided not to start over. He doesn't need us. But this woman's not only going to live, she's going to have offspring. There's hope. She's going to have descendants. But then God changes the language. Not, Not just many offspring of the woman, not just multiple offspring of Satan. He changes the language from plural to singular, one specific descendant of the woman. One man, Satan, is going to crush your head. Now there's hope. 
So, so the curse brought death and disease and decay and pain and frustration, but it also contained a glorious promise. It also contained a beautiful hope, both for humanity and for creation itself. We don't have time to go through that whole passage in Genesis 3, but each element of the curse, we see hope in it. The universe's condition is directly tied to humanity's condition. The universe's destiny is directly tied to our destiny. And so creation was marred. Creation was twisted by our corruption. And it's not until man is finally glorified, set free from the curse and the corruption of sin, that the universe will once again be what it was supposed to be. Until then, the universe is broken beyond our ability to do anything about it. Then verse 20 ends with this little phrase. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. English translations differ a little bit on this. Some tie that statement in hope to what follows it in verse 21. uh, It was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, period, in hope that the creation itself will be set free. Others tie it to verse 20, to what came before it. It was subjected to futility in hope. And so that the first word then of verse 21, which, which is that in my ESV translation, should be understood as because. It was subjected to futility and hope because creation itself will be set free. I tend to believe that's the right way to understand what Paul's writing here. Because what we see in Genesis 3, there is hope built into this curse. There's promise of hope for humanity and for creation. And What's the hope in which creation was subjected to futility? Well, look with me again as we continue on. Verse 21. That creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So from the very moment, here's as Paul personifies the universe, he's saying from the very moment of the curse, from the very moment of the fall in Genesis 3, the universe has known this is not how it's supposed to be. And the universe has also known that it's, it's as soon as the children of God are revealed in glory that it itself will be set free from this corruption, set free from its slavery to corruption. Creation, friends, as we look around, is currently a slave. It's a slave to corruption. It's in bondage to corruption. Think about that. Why all the death? Why all the disease? Why all the destruction? Why all the decay? Because under the curse of God, the universe is broken. But, but this slavery to corruption is one day going to give way to beautiful, glorious freedom. Notice what Paul calls this freedom. It is, here in verse 21, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What, what, what creation's future is tied to is the Christian's glory. Our being brought into conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we learned, if, if this is your regular church, and you were with us a couple months ago as we were in Romans chapter 5, that all humanity is lumped together in solidarity under Adam, cemented in together in this mass of, of all humanity because of the fall in sin. 
And what we see now as Paul is personifying creation this way is that creation had the same thing happen to it. Creation itself is, is cemented into solidarity with Adam and with us ever since the fall. And so when redeemed humanity becomes what it was always intended to be, creation will also become what it was always intended to be. Can you even imagine what that kind of universe looks like? What that kind of creation looks like? Freed from its bondage to corruption, no longer a slave to corruption, when it's not trapped in this, this second law of thermodynamics, this cycle of futility, this, this hamster wheel where nothing is ever really accomplished. Well, creation is longing for that moment. That's what creation is longing for. It knows that that's what it was meant for. He says in verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The, the whole universe together is groaning. The trees, the plants, the rocks, the atmosphere, the animals groaning together as if in labor. Creation, again, depicted as, as a woman in labor. What is a woman thinking about in the midst of childbirth? I have not given birth. I hope never to. But I keep hearing stuff about it's not just women who can give birth and get pregnant. So I don't know what that means, but it freaks me out. Just a little joke about the insanity of our culture. All right, so what are they thinking about? I've witnessed a couple of them. Well, what's going on? There's, there's a mingling of a couple things going on in that moment. There's hopeful anticipation, great excitement, eagerness, and incredible discomfort, which the women in the room will say is not a strong enough word. I got an A. That's my first amen this morning. It's not a strong enough word. It's not just one or the other, right? It's both. It's both of those things. There is serious pain, and there is great hope and excitement. That's how God depicts the created order right now, groaning, suffering in agonized anticipation. So the second half of our passage, and, and don't worry, we're going to be brief here, like, are we only halfway through? Because that's not, that's not what we want. No, we'll be brief because many of the same elements now are, are here in the second half that we've just looked at. It's not just creation that's groaning in anticipation. Christians eagerly anticipate future glory. Look at verse 23. Not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Christians feel that same internal strain that the universe feels. Do you, Christian, feel that sometimes? You look at the world around us and think, as we sang together this morning, Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass. In Christ, we've been made citizens of heaven already. We've been adopted into God's family already. We have been declared righteous already by his grace through faith. And what that means is that in this world, we are homeless. We are pilgrims. This is not our home, not our ultimate one. There's a longing in us. There's a groaning for our glorification. Why do we feel that way? Why can I say that all Christians have this longing? All Christians have this groaning in eager anticipation 
because of what Paul tells us here in verse 23. He says, the reason we feel this way is because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's why Christians feel this way. That's why Christians feel like pilgrims, longing for their true home longing for their redemption, longing for their glorification. First fruits, it's, it's that which is brought in at the beginning of the harvest. And so it's, it's the first grapes from the vineyard that produce this anticipation in, in you, that, that you taste the first grapes from your vineyard and you say, this is just the beginning. There's so much more. There's so much more of this. There's a whole vineyard full of this. We've got months and months worth of these grapes to enjoy. The Holy Spirit indwelling the believer is, as Paul says, the first fruits. It's a down payment on eternity. It's, it's the first taste of, of what is to come in full measure for us in the future. The indwelling Holy Spirit is a reminder for believers who are living in this world bound to corruption that this present state is not right. The things here are not right. That we're not to be settled and, and, and comfortable in the world around us as it is. This world is not our home. Heaven is our home. The Holy Spirit is a constant reminder of that. A constant reminder that our hope is not found in this world, in the things that we see around us. It is not found here in the things of earth. The Holy Spirit sets our sights on eternity. As we talked about a little earlier from 1 John chapter 3, we've already been adopted as sons. That, that, that's our status. But John says what we will be has not yet appeared. There is so much more coming. Christian, you have been adopted as a son of God with a great and glorious inheritance. And there is so much more coming. We have not yet experienced what Paul says here in verse 23 is the redemption of our bodies. He's talking about the resurrection we haven't experienced that. We've not been united to our resurrection bodies yet, unable to fall apart, unable to get sick. Isaiah says, and these bodies will run and not grow weary, will walk and not faint. Verse 24, Paul says then, for in this hope we were saved. Now what is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We've talked about hope before in the book of Romans. And again, we, we, we need to be reminded, we need the New Testament definition of hope, not the American definition of hope. How, how do we use hope? When we talk about, oh, I hope this happens, what we mean is it's something that might happen or it might not happen. But I'm sure hoping it goes this direction instead of the other direction. In the American vernacular, hope is wishful thinking. But that's not how the Bible uses this word. That's not what the Bible means when it says the word hope. In Scripture, hope is not wishful thinking. It's not even, hey, the odds are pretty good and here's the most likely outcome. No, hope in Scripture is a sure confidence of a promised reality that is not yet possessed. It's not in our hands yet. We're not fully experiencing it yet, but it is ours, and no one and nothing can ever take it from us. That's hope in Scripture. John MacArthur says this on this passage, in this life we cannot expect to experience the reality of our glorification, but only the hope of it. Since the believer's hope is based on God's promise the completion of his salvation is more certain by far than anything he sees with his eyes, end quote. 
That's hope in Scripture. We don't possess it yet, but it is ours, and nothing can take it from us. Hope, by its, its very nature, is something that is not seen with the eyes. It has a future aspect to it, things that, that aren't yet fully in our grasp. That's what Paul says when he, it's what he means here in verse 24. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? I don't hope that Andrea is going to marry me. She has married me, for better or for worse. I'm so glad that line was in our vows. I'm not waiting for the realization of that marriage. I'm not hoping for it. That's not what hope is. Hope isn't about something that you have fully in your grasp. Hope has to do with the future. And and believer, God is calling you to set your hope to set your affections not on the things of earth, not on this present evil age given over, subjected to futility, but to set your hope elsewhere. God, Christian, has has rescued you from the rat race. He has has taken you off of the, the hamster wheel of the futility of creation, and he has said, set your hope somewhere else. We have to set our sights on greater things, on, on glorious things. And we haven't seen them yet, not, not in their fullness, but they're ours. They're ours. We have them by faith, by confidence in what God has said, which is unshakable. It's not wishful thinking. It's not pie-in-the-sky escapism. Oh, things are bad here, but we're going up to that grand land of glory one. No, it's not wishful thinking. It's not naive. This is faith. This is confidence produced by God in the heart of the believer. This is not something we can manufacture on our own in any kind of sustainable way whatsoever. But everyone who is in Christ has this hope embedded in them by the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within us. This brings us then to a fundamental quality of the Christian. In verse 25, Paul says what? We wait for it with patience. A word could also be translated as perseverance. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the Christian, giving to us this realization that the world is broken, giving us this this longing for glory, and then giving to us perseverance. Genuine faith perseveres. The hope that the Holy Spirit gives endures. We live our lives in this hopeful, eager longing, in this anticipation, and it only grows with our years. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 describes a Christian as one who has turned from idolatry to serve the living God and who is waiting, awaiting the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself taught us to think like this and to pray like this, to pray for the coming kingdom. He says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, when he teaches us how to pray, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. In other words, it's not here yet in its fullness. Not in its fullness. Your your kingdom come. The Christian's longing, the Christian's heart cry is, God, let your kingdom come in its fullness. We long for the new heavens and the new earth. We long for that eternal state. It's described in Isaiah 25 as a great banquet. 
where God spreads out a lavished table before people from every language and tribe and tongue. And God's people will say on that day, Isaiah tells us in chapter 25, verse 9, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Oh, Christian, do the broken things in this world increase your longing for future glory? Or do they make you grumpy and incredibly discouraging to be around to anyone who has the misfortune of coming into your presence? Do you complain? Do you rant? Do you gossip? Do you speak maliciously? Or do you look expectantly to a time where there will be no more sin, no more effects of this curse? Friends, I want to call you now to examine yourselves. Examine your hearts. Do you deal with your frustrations like a Christian? Is the Holy Spirit of God directing your thoughts and emotions, or are you suppressing the truth about God and believing a lie, like Paul tells us we're so tempted to do in Romans chapter 1? Let me just make it even harder for you to... That inner lawyer is skilled in coming to our defense. No, I'm not like that. I think I'm exactly the way. When's the last time you've had something to say to someone else in this church about another person in this church? If that's the case, you're suppressing the truth of God and believing a lie. These things reveal where our affections are set, friends. When things don't go the way we want them to, to go, and it makes us so angry. And it just sets us off. And we got to say something about it. We won't go talk to the person and be reconciled as we're commanded in Scripture. No, we want to talk about it to other people. Friends, these things reveal our hearts. They reveal where our, our affections are set. They reveal the God that we're serving. What does the condition of your heart reveal about you? Where your hope lies? What you're trusting in? Where your eyes are set? These things reveal what we prize. They reveal what we treasure. The world worships and serves created things rather than the creator who is blessed forever. They worship themselves rather than God, but not us. Not us. Our hope is set on the glory of God and we eagerly long for his appearing when we will receive the fullness of our promised inheritance and that colors everything. Everything in our lives is filtered through that eager expectation. Oh, my prayer is that that's how it would be for us. That that's how it would be. That we would groan and long and anticipate this future glory that is a sure promise and that that would affect everything about the way we live our lives in this broken world, brothers and sisters. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Thank you for the hope of your gospel. Thank you for the promise of your gospel. Thank you for your promises to us, which are so unshakable that they're more true than the things we see with our eyes, the things we touch with our hands. Lord, we want to trust in you. We want to be faithful. It's so easy for us. 
It's so easy for us to become distracted. It's so easy for us to be consumed with the things of this world, with our own desires and our own wants. But I pray, Lord, that you would readjust our thinking by your Spirit who you have sent to dwell within us, that you would bring us into conformity to the likeness of Christ. Once we were subjected to futility, but now we are subjects of a good and gracious and loving Father. I pray, Lord, that you would make us increasingly faithful in the days to come for your glory and for your namesake, for the sake of your kingdom. And we pray together as your people, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.